You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful uh, for your kindness to us and your Son. Thank you even for this morning being reminded of our baptism that you have claimed us when we were incapable of claiming you. Uh, you reached low and, and sealed us in yourself and brought us into your own family, Lord. And so we're, we're grateful for the good word that we've heard today and, and the worship that we've had together. Now, now uh, in, this, in this period of time and in this series that we're starting today and moving forward, we, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need you, Holy Spirit, to um, function in the way in which you promised that you would, and that is that you'd be our teacher, that you would remind us of the of the faith that has been given to us in our Lord and Savior Jesus, and Lord, that you would let us enter into this series with a sense of anticipation about uh, what you might teach us from your word uh, as we listen with the ears of faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting... Uh, today, and I don't remember how many weeks, I think it's six or seven, um, but we're starting a, a series today that's, that I've entitled um, a, a, a Biblical Theological Exposition of the Nicene Creed. I mean, with a title like that, I'm surprised you're here, uh, uh, but nevertheless, here you are. And I, I'll explain what I mean by that in, in a little bit, because today... Um, I viewed sort of today's class as an orientation course to kind of uh, or orientation um, lesson to try to get us out of the gate uh, to think through uh, some of the contextualized matters that we need for understanding the Nicene Creed um, and to give you a sense of what to anticipate with this uh, with this series uh, over the next several weeks. I, I've not done a course like this before, uh, though I've actually given a, sort of a lot of thought in, in my teaching life and some some writing projects as well. Uh, to the relationship of the Nicene Creed uh, to the exegesis of the Bible. And that's that particular question there is what's going to drive uh, this class. Um, so, with that said, let me give you a few sort of background matters, uh, clarifying of terms, and sort of situate the Nicene Creed um, in its 4th century context. Um, and, and if you want some book resource ideas as well, I'm happy to do that. I'll let you know who I'm pretty reliant on on this as well. But, but let me give you a sense of um, some background issues on the Nicene Creed and contextualize this for you historically, all right? And, and this, this is not what our course is going to be about, by the way. What I'm doing now is just giving us some bricks and mortar so that we can build a house later. But this, this is just to get you a sense of, of some context for the, for the Nicene uh, Creed. By the way, just for sort of remembrance sake, when, when do we say the Nicene Creed around here? In, in the Eucharist celebration, right? And we do the Apostles' Creed during morning prayer. So we have a creedal rhythm to the way in which we order our own worshiping lives together. But the Nicene Creed is a creed that's typically linked to our Eucharistic celebrations together. That's important. We'll come back to that. All right, so um, early in, in the 4th century, so we're talking about early 300s A.D., um, uh, there was a heresy that was wreaking havoc on the Eastern Empire of Rome. Uh, so you think about the, sort of the Western front of the Roman Empire being what we might think of as modern-day Europe, down into Italy, and then the Eastern part of the Empire, think um, Asia Minor, Turkey, into 
um, into the, uh, uh, I guess, uh, western part of, uh, of Asia as well. So there was, a, there was a heresy that was running rampant during this time, and it was wreaking havoc on the empire. And this, this heresy was refer, is called the, oh, there's no chalk. Anyway, the, the um, Arian heresy. A-R-I-A-N. Uh, don't name your dog Arius if you love him or her. Um, so what, what is this about Arius? Well, let me, let me explain that in a second. First of all, I'll give you a little bit more context. Constantine was the Roman emperor by this time. And if you remember, Constantine had a kind of conversion to the Christian faith that then instituted uh, Christianity as the religion of the whole empire. That's a remarkable thing. I mean, just thinking about the move from, say, the first century world, uh, say, Nero on the throne, Justinian, some of these other emperors who were hostile to Christian faith that understood the Roman Empire's religious worldview to be primarily centered around the, the sort of cult of the Caesar, I mean, many Christians died because they refused uh, to give allegiance to um, to Caesar in a way that recognized him as divine. I mean, we're talking about um, Polycarp, and I, I mean, they're, they're dying in the arena because they wouldn't do this. We blink, Constantine's on the throne in the four, early 4th century, and now uh, Christianity becomes the religion of the empire. Now, there, there are lots of debates among, say, modern-day Christians about whether or not the rise of Constantine was a good thing or not. Um, and I don't want to sort of tra- chase that rabbit trail, but we'll not call the birth of Christendom. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? I'll, I'll, I'll table that, but needless to say, in the providence of God, having a Christian emperor on the throne allowed for the circumstances necessary to have a group-wide or a sort of or empire-wide conversation about what the content of the Christian faith was for all Christians under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. That, that's an important providence to at least take into account whatever your views are on uh, Constantine, thumbs up or thumbs down. Okay, so he's on the throne. And we're talking here, his reign being 306 to 337 AD. But because of this trouble, and this was a significant matter a problem in the life of the church there was a widespread approval for a need of a universal council to convene to settle this matter about um Arius. now as, as an aside one thing i think to sort of take into account um with the role of heresy and i don't remember what was the name what's the name of um oh fran your uncle's book uh the Cruelty of Heresy. Um, so that, that Fitzsimmons Allison wrote a book called The Cruelty of Her- Heresy. I had a professor uh, in seminary named Harold O.J. Brown who wrote a book entitled Heresies. I still have it on my shelves. Good book. Um, another way of understanding heresies, too, and this, this is, this is a, you know, I've entered into this sort of carefully, but, but heresies also provided a kind of gift to the church in, in the sense of um, forcing the church to think critically and biblically about what it believed the faith to be, what it believed the scriptures to be. Uh, so we see, for example, in the fourth century, the critical question, and I'll explain this in a second, but the critical question in the fourth century was, what is the relationship between the Son of God and God the Father? How do we understand these persons, and the Holy Spirit comes into this mix as well, how do we understand these distinct persons as sharing in a common divine essence? That was the driving concern of the 4th century. But then, uh, but then when we get to the 5th century, 
Guess what the driving concern is of the 5th century? If Nicaea is true, and we'll explain all this in a second, if that's true, then how do we understand the human person Jesus? How do we understand Jesus of Nazareth being fully God, if that's true, and fully man? Was he a schizoid? You know, was Jesus like, in, on this page of the Bible, he's working according to his divine nature. On this page of the Bible, he's working according to his human nature. Can you put verbs on the natures of Jesus Christ? This all becomes very important in the 5th century. In other words, can we say the human nature of Jesus does something? Or the divine nature of Jesus does something? Can we put verbs on it? Can we predicate it? And, and the answer, the, the sort of Catholic answer that comes from the Council of Chalcedon is, no, we cannot. We cannot put verbs on the natures of Jesus Christ. All we can do is put verbs on the single subject who is fully God and fully man. Now, maybe, maybe that'll be our, our, our series another time. We'll do sort of the Bible and the Council of Chalcedon, because Chalcedon in many ways created, um, as many problems as it solved. Um, and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of leave that to the side. But the point is, these, these challenges that come into the life of the church about the content of its faith forces the church to think critically about how it understands um, its faith and what it means, what it affirms as the material content of Christian doctrine. Now, I've, I, I, you know, I, I make my my living by teaching the Bible and Christian doctrine, so I, I obviously have a high view of this. But I think it's important, given our location in the 21st century, to realize if we locate ourselves in the fourth century, I mean, even from the beginning of the church on, but especially the fourth century into the fifth century. Doctrine was a matter of life and death. In other words, it wasn't just a let's agree to disagree kind of thing. Um, this doctrine was central um, to organizing the church around a common, a substantial creed about what it understood to be the faith that they confessed that allowed them to identify themselves as Christians or not. So this was this is life and death stuff. Um, chairs everywhere. Sure, come in. This is the spit section. Um, um, so, uh, so what about Arius? What was it that Arius uh, taught? Okay, so let me let me give you a little background on on Arius. Arius combined, and and, and you know the, the name Origen. Origen was a second century theologian that ended up getting anathematized by the church. But I, I've got a soft place in my heart for Origen. But we'll save that to the side. Um, he combined uh, Origen's emphasis. On real distinctions within the Trinity. Now you're gonna, we're gonna have to buckle up here, right? So let's, let's, the fourth gear intellectually here. Um, real distinctions within the Trinity. What do I mean by this? That, um, Jesus of Nazareth actually prayed to someone. You think about that, right? I mean, if Jesus is fully God, but he's kneeling in a garden and praying, to whom is he praying? Alright. Um, Origin and the Eastern Church emphasizes this, wants to emphasize the distinctions within the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. We have distinct, the technical term is persona, distinct persons. So Arius affirmed that, while at the same time affirming, and this is crucial here, a radical commitment to the singularity of the one unoriginated and unbegotten God. So let me, let me say this again. Distinct persons, yes, while at the same time recognizing that there is only one God and one unoriginated God, one unbegotten God. 
So here were the results of these this combination of ideas. So while we can speak of a divine trinity, Arius would affirm that, only the first entity, only the Father, can be understood as truly and fully God without remainder. So there's a kind of graded um, hierarchy of transcendence and divinity within the divine uh, Godhead. So that a demarcation exists between the one God and the creation of nothing from the divine will. So that the Son of God is understood ultimately to be within the realm of the latter, namely the created world. Is Jesus God? Arius would say, yes, in a way. But here was the... Here was the real sticking point, and you'll feel this in the language of Nicaea, but this is also what, what Arius would have affirmed, and I want you to sort of remember this. Yes, Jesus is divine in his nature, but at the same time, there was a time when he was not. All right? So Arius would say there was a time when he was not. Um, I'll say this as an aside. When we're together in church, I love that we do this. I think it's so important because, it, it, again, it links us to a sort of continuity of faith within within uh, the church Catholic, right? So when we're in the church and we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was, what? In the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I mean, I, I hope this isn't, doesn't ruin church for you. But I almost feel like you need to you need to hear when you say that a kind of fourth century um, f- uh, fight song band playing in the background. Right? Why? Because that that was not a that that was those were fighting words. Because here you have Arius on the other side saying there was a time when he was not, and the orthodox response to that was glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. No, there was not a time when he was not. Right. So you see the sort of polemical side of even our Christian liturgy. I mean, what we've done together for centuries in the life of the church is born um, from a really a polemical edge. There's a, there's a kind of polemic against false teaching in the life of the church going all the way back to the 4th century and earlier. Okay. Um, here's a little, another fun fact for you. Um, after Nicaea first met in 325, I'm going to explain all of this to you here. After Nicaea, um, you know, Arius dies around 338 AD. Another bishop arises. If you, by the way, I should say this aside. If this is being recorded, cut this part out. Um, there, there have been bad bishops for a long time. Um, I mean, like bad bishops, not a new thing. Not a new thing at all. Not, not, not let's get excited about. Um, here's another one. His name's Marcellus. Uh, Bishop of Ansira. He understood that the First Council of Nicaea, which we'll all talk about in a little bit, um, he understood this First Council of Nicaea to affirm God as a single person. And so what was the result of this particular view as well? Well, this was the result of uh, Marcellus, Bishop of Ansira. It was what became a new form of modalism. So these are all the heresies that these creeds are trying to fight, right? What was the new form of modalism? God is a single person. And what you have are different modes of expression of that God. So that really, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not distinct persona, but just different expressions of the one monad who is uh, the single person God. 
So when we get into the Nicene Creed that we confess uh, every Eucharist Sunday here, when we get into that, you're going to see that this creed is addressing all of these um, false trails where there are dragons waiting for you at the end of these trails. The, these creeds are trying to stave off bad readings of the Bible and misunderstandings of, of Christian uh, theology. All right, So I'll put that to the side. Now, a few other things. What is the creed that we say together in church on Sundays? It's not the creed that comes out of the first convention, which met in 325 A.D. in Nicaea. So, so the council had been called together by, by Constantine to bring the eastern and the western churches to meet in Nicaea. And they met first in 325 A.D. Have I lost you still here? 325 A.D. Um, about 300 bishops are present at this council. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable achievement. I mean, people raise the question today, you know, how could we have sort of Catholic consensus on any... I, I don't even think we have the organizational structures to allow some... Again, this is... I, I, I chalk this up to a, a unique moment in the providence of God in, the, in, I think, the 4th and the 5th century that would even allow for these kinds of massive sort of universal conversations between bishops east and west. We just we don't even have the structures for that really anymore. Um, and here you have them coming together, 300 bishops. You might have recalled um, the Da Vinci Code, which um, is not good. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember watching, I don't know, even know why, we were in New Jersey. I think we were, we were actually in, in Princeton for a few weeks. And I went and saw... Um, the Da Vinci Code in the little theater there. I don't even remember why that was. But I, I went, I was some afternoon, went and watched it. And, and uh, do you remember the scene that they show in the Da Vinci Code movie of the Council of Nicaea? I'll never forget it. Like the, the camera pans down. And it looks like a, I laughed out loud. I remember just laughing. It, it was like romper room. People, it was like British Parliament. Rah! You know, people yelling at each other. It's not that kind of scene here. I mean, this was a serious organization that came together to think critically um, and faithfully about how to speak and confess the one God who is three persons. So they met in 325. They opened on June 19, uh, 325. And here are some of the key phrases that emerge from this council. And these are phrases that you know to this day. That is from the same substance as the Father. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. And of course, the most famous, which we will talk a lot about over these next few weeks, homoousios, or of one substance or co-substantial with the Father. This language that's so central to how we talk about God was born out of this meeting in 325 A.D., but, I brought it for you today, I want to read to you the creed that came from that first council of Nicaea, because it doesn't sound like what we say on Sunday morning, alright? And by the way, if you want this, I think the sort of standard critical edition of all the decrees of the ecumenical councils is this one here edited by Tanner. There's two volumes, and if you want to get them, you'll have to sell one of your children or grandchildren to get it. They're, it's, they're ridiculously expensive. Um, anyway, here's the, here's the Nicene Creed. You don't get nervous, because it's not all that long. Here's the first Nicene Creed. Uh, we believe in one God, the Father, all-powerful, maker of all things, both seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten from the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-consubstantial with the Father, 
through whom all things came to be, both those in heaven and those in earth, for us humans and for our salvation. He came down and became incarnate. He became human. He suffered and rose up on the third day, went up into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead, and then the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's the, that's the article in the Holy Spirit in the First Council. And in the Holy Spirit, period. Right. And those who say there was once when he was not, and before he was begotten he was not, and that he came to be from things that were not, or from another hypothesis or substance, affirming the Son of God is subject to change or alteration. These the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes, period. It doesn't have the quite the same ring <laughs> to the one that we do together. But that was the first creed, which established the language that we've become familiar with and the one that we say together regularly. Now, so you raised the question. Well, then where do we get the creed from that we say every Sunday? All right. There's a kind of Nicene orthodoxy that begins after 325. In fact, the Nicene Creed that I just quoted to you today took on different forms, even became expanded, I think, in different places as, again, a baptismal uh, liturgy and confession. Um, uh, uh, Catechumens, those who were preparing for baptism, those who were preparing to become members in the life of the church, had to be able to affirm uh, certain aspects of the faith that, and this is really, we again, don't think of this way, but to remember that they were willing to die for. I believe this, I'm willing to live for this, and I'm willing to die for this. That was the kind of language that was being used in, in preparation for baptism. Um, and it took on different forms as it went to different locations in the life of the church east and west. Uh, but there were other controversies that arose, like Marcellinus, the, the bishop that I mentioned to you from Ansira, or other other particular kinds of um, novel heresies that arose, that clarification was needed about what Nicene orthodoxy, orthodoxy actually entailed. And this is what happens in 381 in another council called the Council of Constantinople. Um, Constantine is dead. Arius is dead. Um, and here we come to the Council of Constantinople. And if you want a name to attach to this who is really central, a central theologian, think Gregory of Nazianzus, um, an Eastern church father who, if you push me into a corner and say, name your favorite fourth century theologian, it wouldn't take me long to say Gregory of Nazianzus. He was referred to as the theologian. I like to refer to him as the man. Um, <laughs> anyway, Gregory of Nazianzus is linked to this. And this, this is the council that came together in 381. And the creed that we recite together every other Sunday is this creed that comes out of uh, Constantinople in 381. Now, the Nicene Creed has a nice ring to it, and that's why, and it's simple, and that's why we, we understand the Nicene Creed to be the Nicene Creed. We say, we, we describe it in those terms. Um, but this is the technical term for it. It's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, because it stems from this particular council at Constantinople, but that's hard to say in a liturgical setting. So we just say um, the Nicene Creed. Okay. That's right. That's too too many too too, too much for the font. Um, so this council embraced the faith of Nicaea. It combated the several heresies, and this is the creed that we cite and we state um, even together to this day. And it has its source back here in the late fourth century. All right, so let, let me stop for a second, kind of give you any questions that you want to ask about that. Um, yeah. I'm trying to understand the difference and significance between begotten, not made, other than he's just not of the creative order, he's always existed. 
Yeah, well, we're going to give a whole lesson to that, but I'll, let me go ahead and just answer that now in, in the best way that I can. Um, and, and, and this actually gets us to the next point, so I'm going to, Jen, this is helpful. The reason why you have that distinction that's present in the creed is because, and this is what I tell my students at Beeson, um, and, I, and I mean it to unsettle them, because I want them to think through these things critically. Every heretic of the early church, you know, some of this is understood after the fact, looking back, but every heretic in the life of the church had a Bible verse or two on their side. I mean, I think this is, you know, so the, the, the sort of, and this is very common in the South, especially the Appalachian region of the South, where you had the rise of the Stone-Campbell movement, which which eschewed all creeds. Um, uh, uh, what's the, there's a hymn I used to sing growing up that said, uh, I, oh, I need no other argument, I need no other, um, and, there's something, and there's another place that says, I have no creed, it's just Jesus and his blood shed for me. I mean, there's this sort of understanding and eschewing of creedal life as a kind of interloper into a pure encounter between me and the Bible. And I, I tell my students, and I hope this doesn't sort of ruffle any feathers here, but maybe I'm talking to the choir. I tell my students, your reading of the Bible in an isolated way, apart from a larger context in the life of the church, is your first road to heresy. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous path to go down, to think that it's sort of me, Jesus, and my Bible, outside of the context of the Bible in the broader frame of the church Catholic. I use that with lower C, but the church Catholic. So why do I say this? I say this because that language, begotten, not made, reveals an internal debate, theological debate, of the fourth century. And this is going to blow our hair by my students. It just throws them for a loop when I tell them this. Over the exegesis or the reading of Proverbs chapter 8. I mean, I've, 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 this, even now, it's just still, I, I love it. Because if I were to tell, give you all an assignment, I want you all to go home this week, and uh, use whatever resources you want to, but I want you to next week come back and give an argument for the divinity of Jesus, full stop, not a gradated, but a, whatever we can say about the divine can be predicated on Jesus, that he was not um, a, cre a created being, that he's fully God, he's eternal. I want you to make an argument for that based on the Bible, come back next week. If you came back next week and your first paragraph said, we need to wrestle with Proverbs 8, I don't think we'd be, we wouldn't think in that way. Um, but that was where the debate was going on, on Proverbs chapter 8, wrestling with, was there a time when the wisdom of God was a created being? But the Bible also speaks about Jesus as being the only begotten of the Father. So begotten language is language of the Bible. So how can we talk about begottenness while at the same time affirming non, uh, not being a created entity? And that's where I think, what I love about the Nicene Creed, and this, and this, by the way, is the driving thesis of this class, is that the Nicene Creed is trying to use extra-biblical language to give us a sense of the internal judgments and dynamics of the Bible's own claims about God and God's being and God's own internal relation. And how does one do that? One does that by having to make distinctions between things that are similar. Right? He's begotten. And this is where we talk about eternal generation. And how can you say eternally generate? 
Because for God to generate God means that that's an eternal, an eternal reality, not a created thing that has a beginning in time. So to talk about begottenness within the divine Godhead is not to talk about begottenness like the children of Mark Genelette. Because I, I, we're not talking about the same kind of begottenness. So we want to talk about begotten, but not made. I mean, I think that's the language that you have. And there's, there's big debates about in the Bible about how one comes to terms with this. So to kind of use your question, Jim, as a springboard to what I think is really important in this, these, these subtle distinctions that you have within the Nicene Creed that I think within our kind of postmodern context where people are like, ah, whatever. I mean, these things get a little bit laborious. It's life or death for one reason alone. Because the fathers are wrestling with the Bible and what the Bible has to say in its entire scope and sweep about the person of God and God's own internal relations. And not cherry-picking one verse here or there in isolation from the larger picture. Can I give you another another example of this? Um, I mentioned Gregor of Nazianzus and, and his uh, his cousin, Basil the Great. Um, these were the great theologians of the East. They talk about making a distinction between the naming of God in the Bible, between relations and essence. In other words, Jesus can talk about his relationship to the Father in ways that seem like he's not quite the Father, not quite God. Um, only the Father knows this. The church fathers are going to say that that, that particular language there is, a, is the language of relation between the, the uh, persons of the divine Godhead. But it's not language about the essence of God or God's divine being. That's where you go to Philippians chapter 2 or Colossians chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 1 or Proverbs chapter 8. That, there's, there's distinctions that are made. So, so here's the point that I kind of want to kind of, sort of leave with you here as we think about this critically. How does the Nicene Creed relate to the Bible? That's, that's what I want us to think about. How does the Nicene Creed relate to the Bible? And I think this is the way in which we might want to think about that. The Nicene Creed is extra-biblical language that helps us to understand and read the Bible from beginning to end um, in a way that's ruled and right and in accord with God's own being and God's own self-revelation. Now, why is this important? It's important because these creeds kind of fit within a larger tableau, a sort of a larger movement of early church dynamics that understands the faith to be ruled. So, for example, if we go to the, um, to the second century, this is before we have sort of formal uh, creedal expressions. So you go to the second century, you meet a guy like Irenaeus, who, again, if you want to talk about second century theologians that are in the pantheon, Irenaeus is at the head of the pack, all right? Um, Irenaeus is going to talk about the necessity of the rule of faith for reading the Bible. And this is, this is the illustration that, that um, Irenaeus uses in his famous work against heresies. Irenaeus says, let's say that there's somebody in Rome who orders a, a, a mosaic, a tile mosaic, from the great artisan in Athens. And he orders a mosaic of the king. Right, So he says, I want, a, I want a mosaic of the king, and this is what I want it to look like. And the artisan constructs it and crafts it in, in Greece. He puts it on a ship and he sends it to um, Irenaeus in Rome. And now he has all these tiles. Irenaeus says, I need a guidebook. I need some sort of guide to help me put together those tiles so that the picture that comes out from my, my construction project is a king and not a fox. 
right? Um, or, or uh, you know, an, an elephant and not a poodle or something like that. We need a guide to help us. So what's the analogy that he's using here? The analogy is the Bible comes to us not in creedal expression form. The Bible comes to us in narratives. It comes to us in prophecy. It comes to us in proverbs and poetry and stories. In, in a book like Revelation, you have all this different genre of literature that comes to us in the Bible. How do I read it? So that the picture is one of a king and not a fox. And Irenaeus' answer to that is we read the Bible according to a ruled dynamic. So that we read in accord with what the Bible's own claims are about who God is. Now you say that this is really important because I think this is a misunderstanding of this, especially in our, in our community. These creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, um, like the Nicene Creed, they are not to be understood as the gist of the Bible. Or, um, if I can use a, a bourbon or whiskey analogy, it's not the Bible gone through the gin, the, uh, the, 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 the distillery, and now you get this sort of um, dark substance called the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which just gives you the, the basic substance and everything whittled down. To, it's, it was never understood that way. Those are... Those are positive metaphors. Bourbon is a positive <laughs> metaphor. Um, I think the metaphor that we should probably use for whether the rule of faith in the second century or the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed in time is more of a defensive metaphor. In other words, they're guardrails that keep you from going off the highway. Um, if, I, if I could use battle imagery, um, the rule of faith or these creedal expressions of faith they're shields. They're not swords. They, 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 they guard. They don't do the offensive work. So the question then is, well, what does do the offensive work? Well, what is, what does it mean? What does it mean to do theology or pastoral ministry or continued reflection about whatever problems arise in the life of the church that we need to address now in the seventh century or the tenth century or the twenty-first century? Where, where's the positive work done with these um, sort of uh, helpful guardrails to keep us from going off the highway? Every theologian, every one of them, Irenaeus, Gregory Nazianzus, Athanasius, Basil the Great, every one of them would have answered the exact same way. And they probably would have even been dumbfounded that we were asking. The answer would have been, the positive work is done by the continued reading of the Bible. By searching the Scriptures. Because that's where the mind of God is found. That's where God's speaking voice is to be found. That's where the Gospel is continued to be heard. We're giving you these guardrails so that you have an understanding of who the God is that's speaking to you in, in the Bible. And then you say, well, where do they get that understanding of a God? From the Bible itself. There's a kind of circularity here that might bother some of you philosophically, but it's a necessary circularity. Where do these external creedal expressions come from? They come from the Bible. The Bible's own pressure on the church to understand who the God is that's speaking there and who the scope of the whole Bible is speaking about as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the communion of the Spirit with the Father. And that keeps you on a big, if I can use it, a big Bible reading highway that protects you from going down into the ravines and, and guards you so that you can do the positive work, which is what? The ongoing listening to the life of the Bible. I want to say one other thing about this. And then, what's our time? Oh, yeah, I can say one more thing. One, one more thing about this. And this, this actually stems from a conversation that sort of percolated, has been percolating in my mind that uh, Gil, Gil and I had uh, recently. Um, and that's, uh, and I, I love this about our tradition. 
You know, I, I love that we have a kind of Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi approach to the faith. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, what, what is it in the Anglican world? How do we know what you believe? Well, what, what did Cramer leave us? Well, he didn't, didn't leave us with a body of doctrine. He, he left us with a liturgy. Do so you want to know what we believe? Look at the way in which we pray. But this is something that's troubled me. You know, I'm, 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 I still consider myself somewhat new to your world. I mean, we've been in it now for forever. But I still, I didn't, I wasn't, I'm not a cradle Anglican Episcopalian. You know, so I, I, and I, and I get excited about some of the things that other people on their way out are going, oh, whatever, right? <laughs> so I get this. I know that we're trying to find our, ourselves in different locations in the story. Um, but I will say um, that this has troubled me more recently because of some experiences in our own home and with people that we know. And that's this. That even in our own denominational life, um, we have people on Sunday mornings who are saying the same prayers and confessing the same creeds and talking about using the same liturgy as we are, as I am, and yet when we talk about the material substance of the faith with one another, we could not be more miles apart. And, and I've struggled with that. Like I, I have a hard time getting my mind sort of completely around, how can we be saying the same prayers, doing the same creeds, listening to the same lectionary lessons, and yet when it comes to the substance of the faith, can I just use the bogey word that I guess people get still get scared? Doctrine. Um, that that, that um, apostolic deposit of the faith that gets passed on materially from generation to generation, when we talk about that, we, it seems like we're light years apart. Um, how could that be? And I think this is where something like the, the importance of creedal life in the life of the church, or if I can even put it in our context, as, as I understand it, you know, Elizabeth I understood the articles of religion to be the substance of, of what um, the, the, the prayer book liturgy actually entailed. In other words, if you want to know what we mean when we say this, well, then you need to look at Article 6. If you want to know what we mean when we confess this, why don't you look at Article 9? I mean, that, that, that's the, the, the internal relationship between doctrine and prayer. And we need them. I think I'm more convinced of that now, given these experiences over the past year. We need doctrinal commitments so that we understand what it is that we're saying and claiming when we pray together. I think that's actually rather important. And by the way, that's not a novel instinct. That's an instinct that's driving the church from its inception, from its beginning. How do we speak about God in Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is, by the way, Nicene Creed language. We'll talk about this later. I hand on to you that which was first, what? Delivered over to me. That's sort of creedal language. I've been given this. And, and where does it come from? Here's Paul's language. It comes in accordance with the Scriptures. The church continuing to give itself to wrestling with the Scriptures so that it can speak in substantial and concrete ways about the faith that it affirms as we come together to pray and sing and worship and join in this sort of dramatic and mysterious liturgy that draws us together every Sunday. We need doctrine for that. And I think this is what you have going on, I think, in the early 4th century as it wrestles uh, with these things. Okay, let me, this is, I have more on my notes. Would you, let's bat this around. We've got, we got two minutes or so. Any questions about this? Any frustrations? Are you going to go into the process that they went through? Because if you've got... 300 bishops, I can't believe all of them, they just raise their hand and... I have, a, I have something to add. And I'm speaking. 
One of the reasons, that, and I just learned this this year, one of the reasons why it is from Nicaea, Nicaea was one of the most educated places in the old world. They studied the stars, astrology. And as a result, the way that it's been explained to me is that how do you explain this to educated people? So many educated people don't believe in God. They look at it, there's no proof, they don't want God to exist. It doesn't make sense to them. So why do we say a Nicene Creed is because this is what educated people were willing to believe and began to believe. And it speaks to us to this day, that astrology, the study of the stars, how we explain things we don't know how to explain. Well, how does, how does those messages come to us? Why does God allow us to learn more? Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks for that, Eric. Um, I, I think the, 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 no one took great notes on the process. <laughs> In fact, I was reading that in the introduction to this, and it's, it, because that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I think we, we actually see, for example, with the Westminster Confession of Faith, for years, which is a 17th century document, for years, um, which Presbyterians affirm to this day, we, we didn't know all about the process of that either until these documents are found where the minutes of the meetings have now, Oxford Press has now published, multi-volume minutes of the meetings. Fascinating, because of course there's internal politics. We we know that this is not a non-human thing. There's politics, there's maneuvering, there's all. I mean, and when you get into the fifth century, where you have um, Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius sort of uh, showdown over the over the doctrine of Christ. I mean, um, Cyril of Alexandria shows up a day early, starts the council early without him because he knows he's late. I mean, there's all kinds of. I mean, so this is not absent the political dynamics of the church. You can't ex- escape that. I think God calls us to be wise in that, and God uses those kind of messy mechanisms for his own purpose as well. But the point is, we don't really, we don't have the minutes of these meetings. We have the outcomes, and by the way, all the anathemas that come from them as well, which are interesting to read. But we don't have, we don't have the min- no minutes were approved. Yeah. Well, yeah. One source says that of the documents produced, all but two bishops signed it, of, of the 300 that were there. Yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, but I think well, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, and I think that's and Marcellinus was one that did not. But I think I think what the 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 issue with that is, um, and if I hear what your, your question, it would be fascinating to know how those convers a record of the conversations in conclave, you know, in in the actual council itself. Um, I don't think it's the depiction that you have of romper room with you know the Da Vinci Code, but I do think you have a kind of deep um, wrestling and wrangling with. Um, the scriptures, and and if I and, I and where I think I get that from is reading the works of Gregory of Nazianzus and and uh, Athanasius as well, where you kind of get to see the mind at work. But we just we don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. Mark, after taking your your class, yeah. Theological conversations and controversies today make for uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinners. That's about as bad as it gets for us, I think. Um, but for them, I mean, this was this was people being deposed from their office, you know, being being and even I mean, we don't think about the but being anathematized by the church. 
I mean, that means you know your 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 soul is going to be damned. I mean, that's that. So this this was this was very big stuff here. I think that that's that's helpful. All right, we'll do a lot more. Oh, by the way, my goal on this is not to do what we did today. My goal in this course is to work through the actual articles of the creed and think about how the Bible um, pressured or pressured um, these uh, these church fathers to think in those particular terms. I want to show you, my goal is to show you the internal relationship between where the creed, how the creed actually forms and articulates its faith in relationship to the Bible. It kind of whets your appetite on this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's a very canonical instinct. Um, the Bible begins with creation. So does the creed. Right? So we're going to see some of the ways in which the Bible's actual form pressures of the creed to make statements. And I also don't, won't mind pointing out what I think are weaknesses or, or gaps in the creed. All right? this, this is, uh, the creed is not the Bible. I think that's important to remember. It's not the Bible. Um, but it's an aid and a guard to help us read the Bible uh, faithfully. All right? We'll see you next week. Yeah. I'm not breaking any, but I don't remember... I don't, seven weeks, six weeks. It's straight through. We're done. There's no breaks. Yeah. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.